this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Nicole O'Byrne, and I'm a legal historian at the Faculty of Law, University of New Brunswick, which is located on the unceded and unsurrendered land of the Willastiquig. Today, I will be interviewing Andrew Snyderman and Douglas Sanderson, whose Cree name is Amo Banashi, about their co-authored book, Valley of the Birdtail, an Indian Reserve, a White Town, and the Road to Reconciliation, published by HarperCollins in 2022. Andrew Snyderman is a writer, lawyer, and Rhodes Scholar from Montreal. He's published opinions in the New York Times, the Globe and Mail, Maclean's, and several other publications. His profile of Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission on Residential Schools won the award for best print feature of 2011 from the Canadian Association of Journalists. As a lawyer, Andrew has argued before the Supreme Court and advocated for Indigenous clients. He has also served as a human rights policy advisor to the Minister of Foreign Affairs and as a law clerk for a judge of South Africa's Constitutional Court. Douglas Sanderson, whose Cree name is Amo Benashi, is the Pritchard Wilson Chair in Law and Public Policy at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. He has served as a senior policy advisor to Ontario's Attorney General and Minister of Indigenous Affairs. Professor Sanderson's research areas include Aboriginal and Indigenous legal theory, as well as private legal theory. His work uses the lens of material culture and property theory to examine the nature of historic injustice to Indigenous peoples and possible avenues for redress. He is Swampy Cree, Beaver Clan of the Opasquayak Cree Nation. Thank you both for joining us on Witness to Yesterday. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. for both of you. Valley of the Birdtail tells the story of two communities, the town of Rossburn, Manitoba, and the Weiwei Sakapo Indian Reserve. These communities are separated by a few miles on the map, but the people living in town and the reserve have very different lived realities. Why did you want to tell this story? I came to this story because I wanted to understand a very narrow thing that blossomed into this much bigger story. And the narrow question was, why over the last four decades have we allowed as a country to have on-reserve schools be so underfunded and mistreated as compared to provincial public schools? And these communities that we're writing about, Weiwei, Sikapo, and Rossburn, seemed like a good way to get at that problem because they had a provincial public school and just a couple kilometers down the road there was an on-reserve school. And the idea was to try to see that problem of the unequal schools from the point of view of an Indigenous family and from the point of view of a white family, and in this case, a Ukrainian-Canadian family. And over time, the story became much more ambitious as Douglas and I worked on it, and it's become a much larger story of not only how did these schools become so separate and unequal, but how do these communities become so separate and unequal over time? And and they're interesting places because they were created 
more or less at the beginning of Canada um, in the 19th century, and we follow one family in particular in each of these communities to try to get at these much bigger questions about Canadian history and about the inequality we see today. Um, and I hope what that does for readers is it allows them to understand a lot of what they're seeing today. I think a lot of people look at the Canada we have today and they see how unbelievably unequal the outcomes are. And I think in a way we're trying to offer this story to help explain, you know, how did we get here? It's not accidental and it's not inevitable. Uh, there's reasons for it. And I hope that can help us thinking about where we might head next. Douglas, did you want to add to that? As Andrew said, Valley began as an inquiry into education. And there is a, a distinct focus on education throughout the book. And in particular, we're really looking to see how it was uh, not just these two communities, uh, but indigenous and settler communities much more broadly. Um, by what mechanisms uh, was the federal government, uh, what mechanism did they deploy uh, in order to generate these uh, unequal outcomes? And so Valley, as a as a historical work, begins right back at the um, at the founding of the town, more or less at the point of confederation, and you get to see uh, government policies one after the other, um, and how they impact and affect uh, the community of Weiweisikapo, how it is that that community is kept uh, oppressed, and then. Also, um, and this is the part that we don't really generally think about, um, the manner in which the settler communities were privileged in terms of access to th things like um, to, to markets, for example. Um, indigenous people were prevented from selling all agricultural products, uh, whereas the town of Rossburn uh, gets a nice little railway line or, or nearby uh, so that they can bring their, their goods to market. So those policies, though, um, are not just based around education. They they are uh, policies that have a much broader economic and cultural and social uh, effect on communities. And so we want to show how all of those policies pile up one or another, one after the other, over a series of decades uh, to lead to the unequal outcomes uh, that we see today. And so Valley provides a little bit of a roadmap historically for how did we get to where we are. And we really want to make the point, and I, I think we are able to do that, that we're here as a result of deliberate federal government policies, that there's no accident that the outcomes have been um, so misaligned. And I should also point out now, and I think it's important to do so, that this current federal government, uh, the Trudeau liberal government, has actually made a sustained effort to equalize funding uh, between um, schools in on-reserve and provincial school systems. But that said, there's been no talk about how do we make up for the ground for the past 40 or 50 years that we've been underfunding the school. So to this government's credit, they have equalized the funding, uh, but it, reserve schools are, are still well behind because they're trying to recover from four decades of underfunding. Andrew, the book weaves together the multi-generational stories of Indigenous and non-Indigenous families. How did you discover these stories and how are they significant? Well, the, the cue for me was that something really positive and exciting was happening in these two communities. And there was an agreement about 12 years ago to 
all of a sudden give equal funding to an on-reserve school. And this was extremely exciting. And also I found quite absurd because you had this one example of equality and all across the country, it was not that way. And I thought, oh, maybe if we focus in on that place where something positive is happening uh, more recently, we could still get at this history of all the wrong things happening. And really what happened after that was just hanging out and meeting people. And over time, as you know, you just hang out and talk to a lot of people. And over time you think, oh, maybe that person can be a, a great character of this story. And maybe that family can carry the immense weight of this history we're trying to tell. And, and as, as Douglas was saying earlier, we're trying to, to tell a story about po how policy shapes outcomes over time, but we're trying to do that in a very intimate way through the lives of families. And so over time, the story and the research kind of winnows the story down to a couple families and we followed generations in the past to try to explain this larger story. And then we pick a couple key historical figures in government to help fill out that much bigger country picture, pardon me, of what's happening in the whole country. Yeah, I should just add here too, just um, to <laughs> let the listeners know that although this is a, a work of narrative nonfiction and an honest historical account, it's the whole book is told through the lives of characters, of, of real human beings who use their real names. Uh, we learn their stories and their backstories. Uh, we learn about their successes and their failures, their trials and tribulations. And through them, uh, we tell the story of Canada. So uh, we're very proud that one of the things that we often hear about the book is that it reads like a novel, that it doesn't come across as a heavy-handed piece of, uh, of policy reform. Although towards the end of the book, we, we do make an effort to attend to some of those policies policy concerns because uh, you know we, we we've you know we've both been doing this kind of work for a while and the landscape is littered with just really really outrageously sad tragic stories and not a lot of hope and we felt that um, what we wanted to do was to provide an honest account of the past, but then a hopeful look forward, an opportunity for readers to see that they have within themselves the capacity to uh, generate change and that the changes that we're proposing are actually not really super complicated. They don't require constitutional reform. Um, just a general commitment uh, by a government and a, a population uh, to commit itself to equality. And so we have some ideas about how that might come about. Well, Douglas, I'll ask you a follow-up then. In this narrative history, you introduced us to several key historical figures, such as Alexander Morris, Clifford Sifton, and Hayter Reed, all of whom played pivotal roles in the creation and implementation of Canada's Indigenous policy in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Can you tell us a bit about their roles in the history and why they make up key elements of the story? I'm going to focus on Clifford Sifton, who I think in many ways is one of the most interesting um, characters that we come across. And uh, Clifford, Clifford Sifton, is, um, he's a, a prominent lawyer and politician, and he is appointed to become Minister of the Interior around the turn of the last century. And that means he has two jobs. Uh, one of them is to handle Indian affairs in the interior of the country, and the other is to handle immigration. And so uh, Clifford Sifton is responsible for uh, the creation of these Indian reserves, the moving of people to the reserves, the clearing of the prairies, effectively. 
And then he's also in charge of this massive program of immigration where uh, Canada hires agents on commission to go to Eastern Europe to recruit specifically Ukrainian peasants as immigrants to Canada because Clifford Sifton believes that they have the metal to survive our winters and to farm. <laughs> and so he's got, so he's this character who on the one hand, he's bringing Ukrainians here and he's protecting them because there are many racists in Canada at the time who think that Ukrainians, you know, are subhuman species. They're, um, they're just, they're oppressed instantly upon arrival, but Sifton protects them. And Sifton says things like, Ukrainians, it's so important that you maintain your languages and your cultures and your traditions and your dances. And he promotes those activities. Well, at the same time, uh, it's under Clifford Sifton that the Indian Act is uh, altered to make it illegal for Indians to pursue those same kinds of activities. So we sort of got a Jekyll and Hyde kind of character here. And... There's a way in which um, I think Sifton's like a really contemporary kind of character because our nation, like we still do that two-sided immigration policy, right? Now, there's on the one hand, we have programs for white Ukrainians, and then we have separate programs for Eritreans and Ethiopians. And so that kind of um, split personality when it comes to policy uh, has been part of Canadian identity uh, for more than 100 years. Well, those characters are very vividly drawn throughout the book. And I'll go back over to Andrew here. The indigenous figures in the book are skillfully portrayed. Their lived experiences introduce us to some of the more disconcerting aspects of the Indian Act. I thought that Michael Tuvoice's story was particularly fascinating. What does his story tell us about the history of indigenous, non-indigenous relations in Canada? You know, no one's ever asked about Michael Tuvoice as we talked about this book. And I think he's the most interesting uh, character in this book. And, you know, I think maybe some people interested in, in historical research will be listening to this and what, and they might be interested to know that one of the most frustrating things about Michael Tuvoice is that so much of the documentation is lost with him. And so he was a prolific writer. He was also a prolific talker, but he was a prolific and brilliant writer. And he compiled, you know, he had all his speeches in, in collected and there a house burned down on the reserve and we lost all that and he wrote this quite evocative piece back in 1957 about the history of his community and at the very end he says you know I invite anyone who's interested in this stuff to kind of come see me and I'll share all these great documents with you which you know he didn't have space to write about so it's almost like he was reaching out to us all these decades later but there's so much of it is lost. And so what we've got, what we see is kind of a, a complicated man full of contradictions and brilliance. And he's facing, you know, these contradictions that Canada force upon him. And if you'll forgive, if you'll allow me, I just wanted to read a couple sentences that he wrote. I was just, I was just thinking about as we came to this interview. And he wrote this, I think, amazing essay in 1951 which we talk a little bit about in the book. And he is in a sanatorium after having graduated from high school and he attended a residential school from a young age and he's in a sanatorium being treated for tuberculosis. And he writes this, this arresting essay, I think. And it goes, it begins like this. This is the beginning of the essay. It often amuses me when I'm among white strangers to have them look at me intently 
quite unaware that I am observing them. As they gaze at my expressionless and impassive features, I know they are wondering, what goes on in an Indian's mind? What does go on in an Indian's mind? I shall attempt to answer this question in part. You know, and as a researcher, when you find a document like that, you just, it's an amazing moment. And it's, it's a really interesting essay. And he is a key figure, I think, to explain some of the dynamics in Canada and his community. On, and he, on the one hand, is proud of being an Indigenous person and says so. And he speaks Ojibwe fluently and he speaks Ojibwe with his kids. But he also, you know, is a fluent English speaker, obviously, and beautiful writer. And he's kind of like this bridge figure between the federal government and his community. And on the one hand... He's very hopeful for Canada, and he's hopeful that Canada can is has this amazing offer of opportunity and equality. And on the other hand, it's unavoidable that he has to deal with the you know the the abject racism around him, and he has to go serve in World War II to fight for freedom, and he comes back to this country that doesn't allow him to vote or to just do basic things like, you know, do basic economic transactions without approval. And so Canada is treating him like this second-class citizen, but he still, in his writing at least, maintains this faith in the country that I think is quite touching and, and heartbreaking when you, when you read back on it. One of the main themes in the book's education, I'll ask Douglas this question because he's a law teacher. Two of the main characters are Troy and Nelson Luhoe. They're both teachers. How do their experiences shed light on both the Indigenous and non-Indigenous school experience? So Troy and uh, Nelson are, um, they're both teachers by profession. Um, Troy spends uh, a number of years uh, on a reserve in Bloodvane, um, and uh, one of the reasons why education is bad uh, on reserves or has been historically is, you know, they're underfunded, of course. But what does that actually mean? Well, what that means is that the teachers are paid substantially less, the administrators are paid substantially less than they are in provincial schools. So in many places, um, you know, the, the reserve is where you go when you first get out of teacher's college. And that's what Troy did, went, got some experience. And then uh, after he'd been there for a few years, he was able to move back uh, to his hometown and uh, take up a position at the local school. Meanwhile, his, his father, Troy, or uh, Nelson, has um, taken a job, uh, he thinks pretty temporarily, although he stays for quite a long time. He, he's retired as a teacher from the Rossburn School, uh, and he moves to Weiwei to do uh, adult and community education. And so for the first time in his life, Nelson's exposed to the stories of real indigenous people living on reserve through the assignments that he gives them. He learns about their lives. He learns about their struggles. And he comes to see that what is happening on the reserve is unfair because people there want to learn and they're trying hard. But it's really hard to do that when you have 35 students in a classroom, when you don't have proper supplies. Um, what Nelson actually makes a comment at one point where he says, um, you know, he used to be a racist and maybe I still am, right? He's got this self-awareness that although he's learned, he's also learned that he needs to keep learning. 
And the same is actually true uh, of another character in the book, the character who opens and closes the book, Maureen Two-Voice. Um, and she's experienced a wide variety of educational settings, most of them not good throughout her academic career. Um, she gets a master's degree and then actually returns to uh, the communities to work as an indigenous resource officer in the combined school district. But along the way, uh, Maureen learns about her Ukrainian neighbors, things that she never knew, uh, things that I think most of us didn't know. Like, for example, um, during the uh, during the war years, uh, although we attracted and <laughs> recruited all of these Ukrainians, uh, in World War One, Ukraine was still aligned uh, with the with the Axis, and so we interred uh, many many Ukrainians, the ones the very ones we had brought here. And Maureen learns about the pass system on her reserve, with reserves all across the country. Indians were not allowed to leave without the written permission of an Indian agent through this system called the pass system. So these two communities, <laughs> side by side, are experiencing the same kinds of confinement. And yet, because they've never spoken to one another, Maureen doesn't learn about this until she's doing graduate degree, <laughs> until she's doing a graduate degree. And so what's really hopeful to, to us about the characters the, the historic characters, you know, are large. They're interesting and complicated, but they're they're static. But the contemporary characters in the book, we see them capable of learning, capable of changing, capable of uh, assessing their moral outlook and their views, um, and it, it's a very hopeful uh, thing to see that with exposure to the right information in the right context, uh, people can change their minds. They can grow um, and they can come to see injustice and then they come, can, can come to act to right that injustice. And so the characters, I think, uh, really do a nice job for us uh, of showing how it is uh, we can, as readers and citizens, uh, learn and grow and, and change. Andrew, the history of residential schools plays an important role in your book, Many people assume that no one outside of the schools really knew what was going on. You dispel this myth by introducing archival evidence to the contrary. Can you tell us about Tommy Douglas and his concerns that he expressed when he was Premier of Saskatchewan in the 1940s? Yeah, we, we found this amazing story about this young boy named Clifford Shepard, and, and, and it interlinks with this amazing story about Tommy Douglas. And Clifford Shepard is a, uh, I think he was 13 or 14, and he was um, impelled to attend a residential school in Manitoba, and he started running away. Not once, not twice, not three times. I think it was four times. And on the third or fourth time, he, in one of the sweet moments of the book, I think, the horrible principal is trying to restrain him as he as he tries to get away and and Clifford actually lands a kick to this principal's groin and um, that's the only light moment I think in, in Clifford's story as as the documents are able to show us he's he's desperate to get out he's desperate to get out and somehow his story reaches Tommy Douglas and Tommy Douglas you know I, I was just in the microfiches one day kind of flipping around and I and I saw a telegram. He writes the federal minister of Indian Affairs, as it was then called, saying, this is not okay. You know, I'm I'm hearing terrible things about this 
student's story, um, this is not okay. You know, what's going on? And he wrote a series of follow-up messages to the um, Minister of Indian Affairs and to the principal of the school in which um, he expresses his sincere concern. And there was a moment where the principal decides, well, this kid can't run away if we lock him up in a room without clothes indefinitely. And somehow Tommy Douglas finds out about this and he writes to the principal and he says, surely it's not okay to be jailing this teenager without clothes indefinitely. And the good news is that I think because of Tommy Douglas caring, this boy gets to return back to his parents. And, um, you know, one of my regrets about the research is that we actually weren't able to, I, I tried to track Clifford Shepard down and his family down, and perhaps that's a that's a task for another day. But there's this, again, as a researcher, there's this kind of weird feeling of, you know, you're dipping into this really intense moment in someone's life, you know, from the 1940s. I think it was 1947, if I'm not mistaken. And then they kind of disappear again in the documents. And I think it is an important moment in part because, you know, you have a, a real boy resisting with all the might in his spirit. You know, he's not, he's, there's, he's not just a passive um, suffering indigenous person. And I think that's important. And also we have Tommy Douglas who is caring and acting and trying to make a difference. And meanwhile, you have this chortling group of people not taking Tommy Douglas seriously. And I'll, and I'll briefly mention that there is a, an official in the church who made a really snide remark like, you know, if Tommy Douglas spent all his time paying attention to what indigenous children about what was happening to saying about what was happening to them in residential schools, he wouldn't have any time to be premier. Ha ha ha. You know, it's, it's, it's sickening. And Douglas and I really had, in this case, in many cases, you have to really try to exert as much restraint as you can as writers to not just let the documents speak for themselves. So I think uh, Clifford and Tommy Douglas are, are um, pretty inspiring in this episode, and uh, I'm glad we were able to share. Douglas, in the last few chapters of the book, you discuss the funding disparities between on-reserve and off-reserve schools. And you mentioned that in 2010, the communities of Rossburn and Weiwei Sakapo decide to enter a partnership based on equal funding for all children, regardless of where they live. Can you tell us about that funding arrangement and what it reveals about the project of reconciliation? So the 2010 agreement is uh, vital and important, but small in its own way. Um, what the agreement did was uh, it formalized a funding process whereby the uh, the school on the reserve would join in a partnership with the uh, outlying school district. So it becomes sort of one school board. And that meant that they could share resources. Um, and so, for example, kids in the reserve suddenly had access to a speech pathologist. Now, the reason that this uh, 
agreement happens at all is uh, we managed to track down um, some senior federal officials. And they admit that, you know, we could do this because it was so tiny. It's such a tiny little school board. It's so little money that it's easy for us to do it here as an experiment. But, you know, eventually under this current government, of course, they do manage to expand the funding. And of course, the outcomes um, improve on the reserve. And, you know, there's a way in which we could have just stopped there. We could just go like, okay, well, so see, equal funding, you get equal outcomes, mission accomplished. Uh, but we also realize that um, the problem isn't really about uh, about funding, right? Like the, the problem of inequality in uh, Canada. As long as we think about it as a funding problem, we're sitting in the wrong box, right? Because the way we have come to realize, Stobo and I, the way that we fix the education inequality, the way we fix um, access to clean, potable water, the way we fix child welfare system, it's all the same answer. And that's that we need to empower indigenous communities to be able to provide those services for themselves. That's how we're going to guarantee that children aren't going to get cheated in funding at school because indigenous parents will be the ones allocating the funding. Now, this is going to require, you know, and this is going to require a, a redistribution. And we talk about ways that we might affect that redistribution, but we want to be honest about it. And, and I think that um, on my side, uh, indigenous scholars, I'd, we, we tend to forget that we are asking things of settler people. Now, regardless of the justice or injustice of that proposition, people have strong feelings about it um, because they're going to be asked to sacrifice. And for a long, long time, we indigenous scholars have just like made our injustice claims without any regard to the fact that we're asking other people to pay for it. And again, immorality, immorality aside, that redistribution has to come from somewhere. And so in Valley, we talk about the various ways in which we already sort of do this as a country through um, the equalization formula, like we have a constitutional commitment to provide equal services in every province, regardless of that province's financial capacities. So Prince Edward Island and New Brunswick, access to healthcare equivalent to what I can have here in Toronto. And we apply that commitment everywhere in the country except to Indian reserves. And what we want to do is we want to see a world where indigenous uh, communities are brought into confederation through equalization. Um, some communities that might be doing very well would pay into the formula. Others would just receive from the formula. But it's the same basic commitment to equality and dignity, frankly, uh, that we expect of Canadians everywhere. And in Valley, we make the case for uh, why it is we should apply this principle uh, equally uh, to Indigenous Canadians as we do to all other Canadians. Well, when you start talking about equalization and redistribution, of course, taxation arises as a subject. And one of the lines in the book that really caused me to think was, taxation is the lifeblood of governance. What does that mean in the context of contemporary Indigenous, non-Indigenous relations? Well, so taxation is the lifeblood of governing. You know, it, it, governments, municipal, federal, provincial, they have to tax citizens or resources in order to raise money, and then they get to spend that money on citizens in, in various ways. Um, indigenous governments, uh, First Nations governments across the country are not like that. They do not raise almost any money through taxes. Almost all of the money they receive are through federal transfers. And so just like at its core, this is 
this is a broken system because it's not a government. It's an administration of some, it's a, it's financial readministration, but it, it's not, it's not a government. And so, um, providing indigenous communities with not more money, but with access to land, um, that they could, uh, tax, uh, the resource extractor, or perhaps extract the resources themselves, as a way of raising the funds, so that federal transfers are no longer required. I mean, I think we want to, <laughs> we actually want to see a world where federal transfers are are uh, limited, um, and to not all communities, and especially not the ones that are doing well, sitting on lots of oil wealth or whatever. Um, and we also want to see indigenous people, I think, pay more taxes, generally speaking. Um, as part of our commitment to this shared confederation, we all have to be able to contribute just as we all have to be able to receive. And now I have a question for both of you. I think I'll start with Andrew. I'd like to ask you, why do you think history matters in the ongoing process of reconciliation? You know, Nicole, sometimes in the archives, I really did ask myself, you know, what does what mattered in the 1880s in Manitoba and the particular incident I'm thinking of really matter for where we're at today? Because it can feel pretty removed. And I came away from the years of research on this book really energized about, about how it matters. And I think it matters in two ways. One of those are the ways I began this conversation with, which was just to say, it helps us see the world of today with new and clearer eyes, I think. And at a really basic level, I think that can challenge some of the prejudices that we just build up by looking at the unequal world around us. And we just assume, I think a part of all of us assumes that it's there for that way, for good reasons, from from the, the virtues and vices of the people around us. But there's this really important story we're trying to tell in this book about the policies and the power of government pressing down on people and favoring some and disfavoring others. And it helps us understand where we're at today. But I think the second point that, that I hope comes through to someone who reads the book is, you know, that we're bound together. And, and there, and, and that can be hard to see sometimes. And I think, you know, the book in part is telling this story about, of oppression of not just reserves, but indigenous peoples in this country. But the book is bigger than that. There's more room and there's more stories in the book than that. And we're, we're asking the reader to also hold in their mind the story of immigrants to Canada. And we focus on Ukrainian Canadians and the difficulties and triumph they faced and the triumphs they experienced. And I hope what comes through that is a sense of, you know, as Douglas was getting at earlier, there is a sense of commonality that can came, come from that. There's a sense of some parallels in those stories that can draw us together. And also when we look at the story of not just the prairies, but of Canada, we, we've just got to conclude that, you know, our fates, our, our stories are bound, just like our fates in the future are bound. You know, the story of immigration to Canada is tied in an, in a fundamental way to the story of segregation on reserves and oppression. And we can't undo that, of course, today, but I think it helps us see that 
our past and our future are linked in some fundamental way. And we hope reading this book, you know, brings that out to, uh, more clearly to people. At least it, it did for me. Yeah. I've been walking around now for about six months thinking, um, thinking about history and about what, what people know. And, you know, it occurred to me one day, like, I, I don't know why I expect people to know anything about history, right? Like most people stopped studying history in grade 10. My, my son just got his grade 10 report card and it said, Otis has completed his study of Canadian history, right? Like, and I think most people are walking around thinking like, I know what happened, right? I have this sense of this historical narrative and it, it's that, that narrative is affirmed in all kinds of ways all around. But most of that just isn't true <laughs> and, it, and it's not what happened. And I think in the same way that Maureen and Troy and Nelson, when they learn the truth, they're capable of change. And so the history is really important because people uh, feel like <laughs> they understand what happened. And the fact is that for the most part, people uh, it, it are completely ignorant about the historical past. Uh, and... It's really hard, you know, I've been working on this project now for a long time, thinking about you know, the future and how indigenous and settler people can live side by side. And at some point I realized like that project has to be motivated by a willingness of settler people to come to the table and start talking about it. And that's sort of the moment when I realized that's not ever going to happen based in just claims of justice. That will only happen when settler people willingly come to the table because they can see that history has been unfair to indigenous people. That, and we've created an unequal and unjustifiable system. But you can't just come to the table thinking that straight out. You need to see where it came from. You need to be motivated to change. And so history, I think, provides that fuel uh, that people can use to rethink um, what, um, how they feel uh, about the world as it is and how it is we got here. I'd like to thank you both for joining me today and for writing this remarkable book. I think anyone who's interested in reconciliation should read it. I will be assigning it to my students next year, and I'm looking forward to our conversations. Thanks so much. My guests today have been Andrew Stobo Snyderman and Douglas Sanderson, whose Cree name is Amo Banashi. They are the co-authors of Valley of the Birdtail, an Indian Reserve, a White Town, and the Road to Reconciliation, published by HarperCollins in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca, where you can learn more about the Champlain Society. Please follow us on Twitter. We appreciate likes and shares. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We would like to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Nicole O'Byrne. This interview was recorded on February 28, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team. Mm -hmm.